you want to follow along, we're in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. So yeah, Isaiah chapter 40, 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases his strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Good morning. Good to see so many out today. Good to see uh, folks on Zoom. I can't really make you out too well with the sunglasses on, but I do see a bunch of little squares. And we're really glad to have everybody with us today. All right, uh, over the next two or three weeks, uh, first of all, I, I want to say I appreciate all the folks who spoke uh, during my break. Um, worked a lot on the, the theme for 2021 and um, brainstorming some ways with some, some folks, uh, other two shepherds and a couple of our deacons about ways to concretely implement the theme. We'll be kind of launching that uh, the Sunday between uh, Christmas and New Year's Day. So be looking forward to that. Um, working on the banners and the, the website stuff and all that as typical. Uh, and it'll grow out, uh, I think, fairly organic, organically and logically from uh, this year's theme and even the prior years. Well, over the next two, three weeks, though, now, I'm going to be preaching from Isaiah 40. Um, Greg just read an excerpt from Isaiah 40, um, a passage that uh, when we were rearing our kids, we always referred to as the Hampton family uh, verse. Um, we really all liked Isaiah 40 and read it many times. Um, that's not really the reason I'm preaching on it. That's a cherry on top for me personally. But if you uh, grew up in certain high church contexts, or if you're just a fairly observant person, you probably know that this time of year is known as Advent. And while the word Advent may not be in your English Bible, I stress the word English Bible, it derives from a Latin word that translates to arrival or coming. Words which are most definitely in our English Bibles. So if you're reading along in your English Bible and you see the word you know, wait on the coming of the Lord or the arrival or the presence of God. Um, Lord, come quickly. You can just think Advent quickly. That, that's what the word means. It's just the difference in Latin and English. All right? So it is in our Bibles, the word. Um, now, as with other aspects of the, the sort of liturgical calendar that high churches have used throughout the centuries, Advent as a formally observed season is, is, of course, laden with lots and lots of tradition in varying degrees of, uh, you know, sort of biblical warrant, per perhaps. That's not what I'm going to talk about today. And I personally have little interest in keeping tradition for tradition's sake. I didn't grow up with those kinds of traditions. I have no interest in uh, find, following them just because a whole lot of people have done them. Um, I, I do try, as you know, in my preaching to meet people where they are. 
I don't want to become a preacher who preaches in a box, a closed box that only certain insiders who know certain insider handshakes and lingo get. The gospel is for everyone, right? God so loved the world, and we're to be witnessing to the world. And that means we know what, need to know what language the world speaks. We need to know something of the culture and the problems and the angst of the world that we're trying. We can't be faithful to a generation if we don't know that generation. And so I try in my preaching to meet people where they are, to relate the gospel to what they're thinking about at any given season of their lives or of the year. Moreover, the theological concepts behind Advent literally permeate the Bible. You'd be hard-pressed to find something, the theological concepts of which are more... Uh, uh, with which the Bible is more replete than this, the, the concepts behind Advent. Advent focuses on the biblical principles, fundamental biblical principles of God's coming. Come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. On the principle of waiting for God to come. How many times in the Bible do you read that we're to wait on the Lord? It's got to be in the hundreds. Preparing for God to arrive, coming, waiting, preparing. These are the key concepts of Advent, and these words, coming, waiting, and preparing, are all in Isaiah 40. So it would seem this is a fitting text to discuss during a time when so many people focus on this season of Advent. So we're going to do that for the next three weeks, two or three weeks, talk about Isaiah 40. Now, let's go back to the original historical context of this chapter. Much of Isaiah 40 appears to be a response to the, to the despair of God's people, the people of Judah, as they reflect on the implications of their exile into Babylonian captivity. I'm going to be reading, if you just want to keep your finger in Isaiah 40, I'm going to be reading uh, various verses from this, this chapter each of these weeks. And, and it might be a good idea to just be reading over the chapter, Isaiah 40, several times over the next two or three weeks. Let it sort of sink into you uh, and, and you know, kind of define the way you look at things over the next few weeks. Here's what verse 27 says. Why do you say... O Jacob, and speak, O Israel. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. He's saying, why are you people, my people, thinking and saying and feeling that your right is disregarded by me? That's what God is saying through the prophet. And this word translated right, if you're using the NIV, you'll see the word cause. Why, why has God forgotten my cause or the New American Standard uses the word justice. Anybody using the New American Standard? Why, why has God forgotten or disregarded my justice? The word behind this in Hebrew is the word mishpat. We've seen this word many times in some of Matt's teachings and, and the teachings and preachings of others here. It's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. It's one of the big Old Testament words, like kabod, glory, you know, and, and some of the others. Mishpat. It means justice or treating people equitably. That's the basic idea. And it is often used in the context of treating people who are more vulnerable because their equitable treatment usually gets neglected or crushed or stamped on or ignored. And God uh, over and over and over tells his people that they need to be like him because Yahweh, as Psalm 40, uh, 146 puts it, and I quote, executes justice, mishpat, for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. 
He sets prisoners free. He gives sight to the blind and lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord watches over the immigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow. All of that grows out of this concept of mishpat, justice. And here in Isaiah 40, the people of God are saying to God, you've forgotten our mishpat. You've forgotten to take care of us. Our concerns are not on your heart. You're, you're not aware of them, apparently. And so God is saying through the prophet in verse 27 of Isaiah 40, why are you saying that, that I disregard your justice? And then he also has this phrase. Why do you say, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? They believe their whole way, their whole journey through life, their life itself is hidden from the Lord. Wow. The life of God's people, the plight of God's people, hidden from that God. Have you ever felt like that? Like God is hidden? Like you really needed him to show up, like fast. But he's nowhere to be found. Five chapters later, in Isaiah 45, 15, we read this statement from the prophet. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel. Somebody's asking you what the traits of the God you serve are. What might you say? Loving kindness, that's another big Old Testament word, chesed. You might talk about God's love, 1 John, you know, God is love. You might talk about his justice, his holiness, and you wouldn't be wrong. How many of us would say, well, it's his hiddenness? God's hiddenness. Truly, you are, a, I'm quoting here from Isaiah 45, 15. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel. Have you ever felt like you were serving a God who hides himself? So it's this hiddenness of God that I want to discuss this morning as we think about some of the big biblical principles behind the concept of Advent, the hiddenness of God. First, what are some of the things that can make us feel this way? And the most obvious thing to do is to start with Isaiah 40, since that's the context from which we're taking these verses. And so for the original hearers of these words, the context is that they've been exiled. They've been kicked out of their land, which is destroyed. A lot of their relatives and friends are dead. They've been hauled off into a pagan land. The conditions in which this, this section of Isaiah were written were utterly hopeless. By any conventional standard, there is no hope here. Imagine yourselves being drug off to a land ruled by apparently all-powerful tyrants who believe that their gods control the universe. And their gods look to have just won a big battle. And you can go around the whole hinterlands that lie in any direction as far as the eye can see or the camel can travel. And those lands and kings have fallen to their gods. These Mesopotamian gods appear to run everything. So the people of God do not feel in control of their own life. You ever felt like that? The well-being of your loved ones beyond your control. They're like a leaf in a storm. And that storm is the Babylonian Empire and its rulers. Have you ever felt like your problems were both too big for you and too complex for you all at the same time? 
like you had neither the strength nor the stamina and, and nor the wisdom to solve the problems that you face. Reading from verse 28 now. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. We're talking about feeling weary, exhausted, of inadequate strength and power, with a lack of understanding of what we need to do in a certain situation. That's what they were experiencing, and that's what we often experience in such crises. Whether it's a national crisis like COVID, the social scourge of racism, the cultural division in our politics as a nation, whether you're going through a personal health crisis, a job crisis, the familial challenges that we all face in relationships, many of us, I'm sure, can relate to such seasons of darkness. Now add to that, all of that, what is always our biggest problems, problem, though we're usually loath to admit this one, and that's our own sins and failures. Because in verse 2, he talks about speaking tenderly to Israel because they're convinced that their iniquity is the biggest thing God sees, that their sins are, are what God still looks at. And they had them. And we have them. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our biggest problem. It's not somebody out there, somebody on the other side, somebody in the wrong group. Your biggest problem and my biggest problem is you and me. It's self. You know the biggest problem with your marriage is? It's not some law somebody's going to pass. It's you. It's our constitutional narcissism and selfishness. The fact that we don't want to do what Don said Jesus, Don told us Jesus said we should do. We don't want to serve. We want to be served. We want our needs to be met. And so they've got all of that on top of all the other problems. They are in a dark, dark place. And the result of all of this is that they're sure, they're certain that God has hidden himself from them and from their way. He's lost interest in their well-being. And that's not an uncommon problem to feel like God is absent. It is a dark, disconcerting place to be. But folks, darkness is part of this world. And it's interesting to me that at least in the Northern Hemisphere, where the European Christians, I believe, where Advent started, I, I'm pretty sure, Don't, I'm not an expert on the history of Advent, but in the Northern Hemisphere, Advent happens to fall at this time of year which is physically the darkest time of the year, right? The least light, the solstice is coming up. That's interesting. So what, what do we do? What do we do about all this? Let me first of all address what not to do. Let's talk about some false solutions to the problem of living in a dark moment, a dark season. One false solution is denial. Denial, something that human beings are often tempted by or tempted to in times of stress. In theological circles, denial manifests itself as a kind of platitude-based, positive thinking, cliche-filled faith that simply has no room for doubt, 
for lament for darkness. That's just right out from the beginning. And that may be tempting because the pain is real, the stress is real, the darkness is real. But that kind of denial, let me suggest to you, is connected neither to the reality of life on this planet, east of Eden, nor is it connected to large swaths of Scripture. We talk about being people of the book. How about the book of Job? Forty-some-odd chapters on this with no real answer. Where does suffering come from? Where do, why does God allow suffering? Basically, I'm, this is the two-cent, maybe overly simplistic answer. Job, you don't really know what you're talking about. You're going to have to trust me. Tell me how the universe works, then we'll talk. Right? I mean, and all the people who've got the rational reasons, the nice linear causation, cause and effect, they're Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar who are wrong in the book. They're the antagonists. You're left with a lot of mystery, and Job says, I put my hand in my mouth. I, I've, I've spoken about things too mysterious for me to understand. That's the conclusion. What about all of the lament psalms? Numerically, the most common kind of psalm. It's not the kind we typically put on cross-stitch or posters or bumper stickers. It's a lament. What about the whole book of Lamentations or the opening question of, prof of the prophecy of Habakkuk? Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you do not hear? That kind of language is all over the Bible. Literally all over it. The French theologian and philosopher Blaise Pascal said, a religion which does not affirm that God is hidden is not true. And a religion which does not offer the reason for this hiddenness is not illuminating or helpful. Beyond denial, we often turn in our despair to false sources of hope, solutions that ultimately are merely human. And because they are merely human and not from God, they are no answer at all it turns out. So here we're presented with the same options as these exiled Jews. We can put our trust in our country. Verse 15 of Isaiah 40 mentions the nations. He says, behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket to God. They're accounted as the dust on the scales. If you put them in a the scale against the weight, the glory, the habod of God, they don't even measure. They're like, oh, there was something on there before. Cause I see a grain or two of dust. That's the nations. And yet, did Babylon feel like that to these captives? No, it felt all-powerful. Be, be wary of being lured into this idea that your ultimate solution, our ultimate solutions, are going to have something to do with an earthly nation, be it Babylon or America or any of the other ones that have come and gone. You can put your trust in the political rulers, verse 23 of Isaiah 40. Well, I've got pages flipping everywhere. Isaiah 40, verse uh, 23. He says, God brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. We got a whole lot of folks in our culture right now on either side of all sorts of issues who are pretty certain that all will not be well until their rulers are in power. Shame on us. 
Remember that statement about Jesus, often used in Advent time as well? The government will be on his shoulders. The government will be on his shoulders. It's on his shoulders. What about the gods of our culture? In verses 18 through 22, Isaiah 40 just explodes the futility of serving gods other than the real God. To whom then will you liken God, the prophet asked, or what likeness will you compare with him? An idol? A craftsman crafts it or casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver chains. If somebody's too impoverished for all that, he finds a wood that won't rot and he carves his God out of that with a, using the, the, the skills of some artisan to set up this idol that won't move. And then God asks, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, Yahweh, who sits above the circle of the earth and his inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He's above and beyond and outside creation. He is the creator. How will a solution come from within the very world that created the problem? doesn't make any sense. And so none of those things, nations, political leaders, and all the other gods we come up with, we are a veritable factory of gods, of idols, as John Calvin wrote. None of those is big enough, weighty enough, only Yahweh possesses the glory necessary to deliver us. And while we may not see his glory, at least see it very clearly in the darker seasons, the hidden times, the message of Isaiah 40, God's own answer is, I have not forsaken you. I have not forsaken you. You're my people. I remember you and your problems more than you do. I love your loved ones more than you do. So do not make the mistake, he seems to be saying, of equating delay, God's delay, with God's disregard. God's delay does not equal his disregard. In verse 5, he says this, Isaiah 40 in verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The same mouth that spoke all of this created order, this cosmos into existence, has says, said that we will see his glory. Why? On what basis? Well, that's in verse 10 and 11. Because God is coming. That's what the word Advent means. It's just Latin for arrival, coming. Verse 10, read with me, Isaiah 40, verse 10. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. It's this beautiful picture of strength and gentleness, limitless might and limitless love. And he is coming to pour all of that on you and me. His glory is coming, and we will see it. John Oswald, in his commentary on the book of Isaiah, says this about chapter 40 and the chapters that follow. Would not invalidate 
the truths that he had proclaimed earlier. The exile would give God an even greater opportunity to show his sovereignty and his trustworthiness. All that we lack, folks, in strength, in resources, in wisdom, and resolve, God will supply. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths, young people, shall faint and be weary. And young, man, young men shall be exhausted. But in God's hands, things are different. He will supply all of those needs. But I want you to note this as we close, and this is really the takeaway from today's lesson. This life-giving renewal that God promises, this hope that he holds out, comes only to those who wait. Verse 31, the very last verse of the chapter. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Renewal comes to those who wait. The light dawns in the darkness, ultimately for those who are waiting on God's coming. It's those who wait for the Lord, who sit in the darkness, sit there with his promises, mulling them over, believing them afresh every day, talking about them, weighing them, singing about them, praying through them. They're the ones who will experience this hope. It's not those who turn in denial to pain-numbing distractions or turn from God to would-be human saviors, power, politics, possessions, or who allow the accusing voice of the adversary to drown out God's message of abiding grace. Now, admittedly, there's a tension here, a serious tension, one which, I, which lies, I believe, at the heart of what Advent is. As those who wait, as the people who wait on God, we experience God's presence even in his absence. Presence in absence. Sounds like an oxymoron, but that's the tension where we all live. And in that sense, we Christians spend all of our days and all of our seasons in this now but not yet of Advent. When is the church ever not in Advent from this standpoint? As the Swiss theologian Karl Barth once asked, what other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? Advent is another word for life. <laughs> Traditions can develop that give it a certain time of year and all that and whatever. Whatever you think of that, if that's what you're focused on and not the principles behind it, you could be missing a lot that is very central to the teachings of Scripture. So to wait on God, a God whose timing and ways can indeed be mysterious, inscrutable. To do that is simply to live with God. To do that is to simply be one of God's people, to serve Him.
Waiting lies at the essence of all that we are, at least as we live on the cusp of two ages. This present broken creation, beautiful though it is, still broken in the new creation to come. So how? How do we wait faithfully on the coming of the Lord, on his arrival, our deliverer? Well, we're going to examine that question in more detail next week. That's going to be our second sermon from Isaiah 40. So come back or tune in. We're going to try to examine how to better see God in the midst of darkness. But I want to leave you with this thought. Doing that, doing so, is possible. The author Fleming Rutledge has an excellent book on Advent. And in this book, she relates a story from the end of World War II when the Allied troops were liberating Europe. And some of these soldiers found in, uh, in a basement in the German city of, of, of Cologne uh, an inscription, a crudely written inscription on a basement wall. And it was written by someone who was hiding from the Nazi Gestapo. The inscription said, I believe in the sun, even when it's not shining. I believe in love, even when feeling it not. I believe in God, even when God is silent. Thank you.